Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 109th show. Today's guest is Dr. Hank Weisinger, author of Performing Under Pressure. Love this book. I mean, it was an amazing book. You couldn't put it down. And I loved all the research that went into it. So, Hank, uh, welcome. And let's start out with you giving a, a little bit about your professional background. Sure. I am a psychologist by trade, Um, went to graduate school in the Midwest at the University of Kansas, uh, who have just recently, of course, won the NCAA championship. Then I went out to L.A. to do my um, internship. Uh, This was 1976. It was the first ward in the country at the VA hospital that was exclusively designed for Vietnam veterans. They had seven suicides in a year and a half. A national investigation from D.C. came down to see what was going on. As an intern, of course, it was very exciting um, to be in that type of environment. Uh, And it was at that point at the VA where I did a training program on a subject that was I was becoming very interested in, which was giving and taking criticism. At that time in the 70s, the entire corporate world was using the bogus word feedback. As in, come into my office, I have some feedback for you. (laughs) So I got into the subject of criticism, studied it, started doing presentations, ended up writing a book on it. My first book turned into a New York Times bestseller. It was called Nobody's Perfect. One of the chapters was criticism at work. And I quickly parlayed that into the corporate uh, world. Um, the, I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal, So You're Afraid to Criticize Your Boss. It got selected as one of the 60 best management articles ever in the journal. They republished it in their book, Wall Street Journal on Management. UCLA read it, invited me to speak to their executive education program. Uh, and then the rest was history. I ended up teaching there for like 10 years, got into other subjects as managing anger. And by the way, criticism and anger were forerunners to everything that is important in the corporate world now. I will take, and I'll I'll speed it up, but I'll take the position that the skill of giving and taking criticism is more important uh, than any other skill that you can mention or have interviewed a person on. You cannot be successful at work if you cannot give or take uh, criticism, and you cannot be in a successful relationship if you cannot give or take criticism. So from there, I went into anger management. Then I went into the subject of emotional intelligence. Uh, I became the first psychologist to take EI and customize it in the form of books and training to the financial industry, the emotionally intelligent financial advisor. I was teaching, as you know, at Wharton and all their financial programs. Uh, And then I did the emotionally intelligent real estate 
uh, agent, which got me into the real estate uh, shtick um, presentations, uh, and then performing under pressure. And then my last book, and maybe we can talk a little about it at the end, is called The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure. I have found that parental pressure, unhealthy parental pressure, is literally a global uh, pandemic. And uh, now performing under pressure, which is what we'll talk about today. <laughs> well, I love this book, and you did a great job with that. And I think everybody uh, should read this book, and it makes them better aware. And I agree with you totally that as an entrepreneur, we're always teaching entrepreneurs that you have to be able to take criticism. And the 10 years I taught at Wharton, we were always telling them, don't be defensive about uh, feedback that you receive on your presentations and your concepts. Listen to it, digest it, and um, and roll with it. Um, why did you write this book? Uh, I wrote this book, interesting enough, is that when I lived in L.A., I grew up as a diehard Yankee fan. From 1956 to 1964, I would say there were few people, and I'm including the announcers, that knew more about the Yankees than me. This is why I graduated 14th from the bottom of my class instead of going to a Harvard or a Princeton. The idea of coming home and doing homework rather than watching the Three Stooges, Popeye, uh, and Fury is absolutely ridiculous uh, to me. So um, I became a psychology major. I got the highest mark in the class. It was the first time I ever got academic reinforcement, and I became a psych major. And I got into performing under pressure because I'm a diehard as I said, Yankee fan. So when I moved back to Connecticut in 1994, and it, I would have broken my TV set if I did not know how to manage anger because I'm looking at my team and every time it's the ninth inning, the pitcher either gives up three runs and blows the game or the hitter strikes out. So I started asking myself, how come some people can really perform well under pressure? You know, I'm thinking these baseball players and other guys stink and choke was the phrase I used. But the truth was, they didn't choking. They just weren't very good. I started to get into the subject of pressure because of my interest in baseball, of why some players do well and others not. And I researched that very thoroughly. And what I found is a conclusive finding is that nobody does under pressure. Nobody does better under pressure. The key is not to do worse under pressure. The reality is in 1994, the players the Yankees had weren't good players. So how could I expect them to perform? You know, you mentioned, we were talking before is, well, then how do you account the fact that Tom Brady always thrives under pressure? Uh, yeah, we have that as one of my questions here. Yeah, well, he doesn't. He's the best all the time. Do you understand the difference? He's yeah. not rising to the occasion. Rising to the occasion, I want people to know, is a total myth. The C student is never getting 1,600 on their SATs unless they cheat. But the A student many times will choke. Choking, which means not doing your best when you want to, that is a reality. But rising to the occasion is not a reality. So, I, And the reason that is important, because when many people get into a new job, for example, and a promotion or baseball players all of a sudden they get go from a $5 million contract and now they're getting $25 million. They think they have to prove themselves. So they well, start- Isn't that what happened to the baseball player in Baltimore? 
who couldn't hit above 200 after he got the big contract and never, I mean, put so much pressure on himself. He just couldn't hit. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember the player you were thinking you're thinking of? Yeah. I'm forgetting. He's a first, was the first baseman. He just retired last year. I'm, I'm forgetting his name, but he, yeah, they start, they start pressing and they try, yeah. they start trying to do more than they are capable of. You don't have to rise to the occasion. You just have to do your best. Now, if Tom Brady does his best, he wins. The, yeah. the, the the Kentucky in the NCAA lost to St. Peter's, not because St. Peter's is better, but because Kentucky choked. If they played yeah. 10 games, Kentucky would probably win nine. Easily. So yeah. I want people, that's a really important point, that nobody rises to the occasion. That is a myth. Did you see the movie The Natural? Yes, of course. Robert Redford, and you remember the end? Yeah, you talk about it in your book. Yeah, well, in the book, he struck out. That's... Yeah. But you talk yeah. about it in your book. Right. As, as a myth, the yeah. Roy Hobbs myth that you're going to rise to the occasion because the pressure is on. That's when you actually do worse. Well, that's why you're probably a big Reggie Jackson fan when he hit those three home runs uh, against the Dodgers and they call Mr. October, right? That is correct. And what Reggie did is the home, the season he had was no better than his regular his regular statistics. It's just, we remember those. Derek Jeter's last moment up, a game-winning single with the bases loaded. And Michael Kay says, it's the, uh, the Hollywood dream. It's a reality. Really? Why didn't he hit a grand slam in the seventh inning? That would have been a better <laughs> way out. He popped up. We, we, how, how does that fit in? You know how many double plays and ground outs I've seen Derek Jeter hit into? So you have to re, you have to remember that that's the problem with sports. We remember the dramatic moment, but we forget the daily moment of the person striking out. So let's let's um, start kind of at the beginning here. What's the difference? Uh, and you mentioned this in the book between pressure pressure and stress. I think people often confuse the two. Uh, it's not just people; it is academicians as well. I have seen so many academic articles in top psychology journals where they will start out the sentence using the word stress and then think the they use the word pressure at the end as though it is a synonym. The difference is stress and pressure are two different psychological constructs. And very quickly, I don't think you ever watched a sporting event, tennis match, a golf match, where the announcer said the stress is increasing. You yeah. can feel it. It's always the pressure. So they, the, one difference is the definitions. The standard definition of stress is, is being in a situation where you perceive there are demands made upon you. You've got 20 things to do and you only have three hours. So the general feeling is, is you're overwhelmed. It's a mismatch between your resources and the demands made upon you. Pressure is different. Pressure is defined as being in a situation that is important to you and the outcome is dependent on your performance. And I'm gonna give you a one-liner of how you can differentiate. Stress, the common feelings are you feel overwhelmed, you feel exhausted. This is why when people say, oh, you're under a lot of stress, you need to go on a vacation. Uh, pressure, the major feelings that a person would experience are anxiety and fear, not a sense of being overwhelmed. With stress, the goal, another difference is to reduce it. And you can do that many ways. You can delegate, you can prioritize, you can blow things off. With pressure, the goal is only, it's the same goal every time, to perform successfully, to perform the task successfully. So I would want listeners, viewers, 
to remember that when you're in a situation, if you're feeling overwhelmed, you're experiencing stress. If you, if you have to perform, ask yourself, do I have to perform or do I have to feel overwhelmed? If you have to perform, it's pressure. And here's why this is important. People confuse the two. And as a result, they treat every stressful moment as a pressure moment. And then they are on high alert 24-7. Everything becomes the most important thing, <laughs> whether it's a presentation or getting to the cleaners by five o'clock or getting to the supermarket or, or something. Everything is the most important thing. And those individuals end up uh, wasting valuable psychological resources that could be better spent. This is what happens with many teams, that they treat every stressful moment as a do or die moment. And that's what happens in a pressure moment. You start to think of it as a do or die. ESPN did not make up. It's a do or die situation. Um, we have a question from the audience. Can't there be sure. both stress and pressure, although you see they see your point? Yes, um, that stress is part of pressure, but pressure is not necessarily part of stress. That is a, a difference. And it, because in a pressure situation, the de- it's only one demand, the demand to succeed. When people are feeling under pressure, they feel they have to succeed or in the back of their mind, which they may not even be aware of, uh, they will experience some type of impending doom. It's what I like to call primal pressure because thousands and thousands of years ago, if you couldn't jump over the cliff, you would die. If you couldn't find food, you would die. It was a do or die situation. So so as I said earlier, stress is when there's demands upon you, uh, but the demand, so it's part of pressure, but the demand is you have to succeed. I always tell people, here's the differentiator, would you rather be married to stress or pressure? Now, if you're married to stress, you're going to hear, do this, do this, do this, do it now. And when you finish doing this, uh, then you got to do this. If you're married to pressure, you're going to hear the same thing with one difference. Uh, if you don't do it, don't come home. That's the I, difference. I think that's why I'm still single, Hank. Um, oh. <laughs> do you manage them differently? And if so, how? Absolutely. Is that <clears throat> you can manage stress in multiple ways. As I said, you can, what stress management strategy, if I have 10 things to do, you know what? I don't have to do all 10. I'll just do five. In a pressure moment, you know, can you imagine a pitcher in the ninth inning, two outs, bases loaded? He says, you know what? I'm going to do this later, or I'm going to take a nap, or I need to rest. A pilot can tell a joke to relax his co-pilot, but he still has to land the plane. The quarterback, see, if you're, you could just relax. That's it for stress. A relaxation response. But in pressure situation, you have to be relaxed, but you also have to perform the task. So there are many different strategies that to manage pressure, which we will get into, that would not help a person alleviate a sense of, of stress. So uh, what was your methodology, which you write about in the book, for studying the best performers? That's really a good question. And the, the response is what distinguishes this book from books on elite performers. And the answer is this. 
I didn't study elite performers. Maybe a sports psychologist would do that. I had no interest in it. That would be like me studying uh, top executives. I have no interest in, in doing that. I studied as a psychologist the construct of pressure. And it was through studying the construct of pressure that I came across all so many studies. Some of the studies involved skiers. Some of them involved chess players. Some of them involved mountain climbers. Some of them involved students. And that's where I started to get into looking at characteristics of elite performers. I found a great study on the mental uh, habits of people who have climbed Mount Everest. It's not like I said, who climbed Mount Everest and now I want to study their profile. And this is what, this is how I distinguish what a, what a sports psychologist does. And by the way, they didn't even have sports psychology when I was in graduate school. Sports psychologists study elite performance. That's why you'll say, here are the 10 characteristics of, the, of uh, an elite performer or top athlete and so on. I had no use for that. I studied the concept of pressure. That's how I differentiated it between pressure and, you know, I saw the distinction between pressure and stress and the confusion between the two, not by studying a football player and a baseball player or a Navy SEAL. In the studies that I looked at, those populations were often the group uh, used. A question from the audience. Given the same task or need, do some people experience pressure while others do not? Absolutely. And I will tell you the biggest difference between people who are do well under pressure. Remember what doing well under pressure means. It means performing closest to your capabilities. That's what it means. The biggest difference for, between people who do that and people who don't is how they perceive the situation. Do you perceive it as threatening? And I want to give you an example. Or do you perceive it as a challenge, fun, as an opportunity? Now, not long ago, several years ago when the book came out, I called up Golf Digest. I did not realize that they are located um, 15 minutes in Connecticut from where I live. <laughs> and I, I left a message. I was actually giving a presentation in Chicago and I called the editor and I said, um, I want to do an article. I left a message for Golf Digest, five tips your pro will never tell you, your teaching pro will never tell you. The editor called me back and 10 minutes later, kept me on the phone for 45 minutes. He sent a girl to interview me. And I say girl, cause she was, she was young. She was a, on the golf team at Yale and she was doing her internship at um, Golf uh, Digest. So they sent her to interview me, took her out for lunch. Within five minutes, I noticed she had a uh, anxiety disorder. And she told me, this is the point, that she would only take big classes at Yale. She'd never take a small class. Why do you think she would only take big classes? Because she could hide among the big, uh, uh, among the group of people and it wouldn't be focused on her. That's right. How sad is that? She told yeah. me that when she plays golf, she, when she plays poorly, the other girls don't talk to her. I said, what are you talking about? They're not talking. I said, look at the difference. You're thinking about what are they saying about you? They're not talking about you. They're thinking how they're going to play the back nine. That's why they do better than, better than you.
So when you ask that question, yes, you have other Yale students who will raise their hand all the time because they perceive it as an opportunity, a challenge. This is fun. Derek Jeter said, sure, there's pressure. But every time he goes up, he sees, this is what I wanted to do since I was a kid. This is fun. When I started teaching at UCLA, the first time I gave a presentation, I was really nervous. So if you're really nervous, what must I have been saying to myself, Mark? If I was really- You're going to screw up. Exactly. So once I started to change those thoughts, I screw up, they'll never use me again. I, I won't get any business. Once I started saying, you know, this is an opportunity for, for me to promote myself. This is really going to be fun. This is what I want to do. The entire anxiety went away. And I also knew that even if I give, give a lousy presentation, by the time I get home and listen to my message machine, there's going to be 10 more talks, people asking me to, to talk. And that becomes another part of the mindset. One of the things I discovered is what is the mindset for people who do well under pressure versus those people who choke? And important in that mindset is befriending the opportunity. So that means parents, when your kid has a test, you want to say to them, it's a challenge. It's an opportunity to show the teacher what you know. Uh, you know, you hear, I hear these people. And you mentioned, you know, some of the people you have had, they've given TED Talks. Yeah. And I, I, I hear, I can always tell the, the people, and these are people many times who have had best-selling books and they're nervous when they give a TED Talk and they'll actually talk about that. Now, the only reason they're nervous is because they think they're giving a performance. I was asked to do a TED Talk, and they told me I had to rehearse. I said, are you serious? <laughs> I, I don't rehearse. I am like, my attitude is I'm like Sinatra. One take. That is it. When I was on Good Morning America, they start giving you the questions in advance, Mark. They yep. want to rehearse you. I finally said to the, they have got three producers and this is live, you know, right before we go on. And I finally said to them, uh, I'm not Harrison Ford. I don't need a script. I can think for myself. Don't ask me any questions in uh, advance. So when, so when you think of it as a performance, I always thought it as I'm educating people. When I was teaching at Wharton and I would see people write down, if I say, have goals in an executive, oh, have goals. I never thought of that. Let me write that down. I'm thinking, this is the audience I'm talking to. I can feel no stress or, or, or pressure. So befriending the opportunity, always remembering that there's going to be another opportunity flashing back on your success. So anybody listening, anytime you give a presentation, be like Steve Nash when he was shooting foul shots. He said, I've done this 10,000 times. And that will give you a sense of confidence. And you know what? Uh, and I thought of that when you were saying before that, you know, Michael Jordan, whoever it is, uh, Tom Brady, it's because they've practiced this so many times that they're not rising to the occasion. They're performing as they should. And if they don't win, it's because they've had a bad day in a sense. So like we had Ben Simmons here in Philadelphia and he only shot 29% from the line. but if you knew the backstory, which I happened to, the guy never practiced foul shots. And so, you know, Michael Jordan shot 500 shots a day. And so his expectation was this. Uh, I talked to a professional coach, uh, shooting coach uh, who played in the NBA and who teaches NBA players because anybody can be a 70% foul shooter. It's all muscle memory. 
So he said, if you go and shoot 200 to 500 shots a day, there literally is no reason for you not to shoot 70% or greater. I'm not talking about jump shots. I'm just talking about something that requires repetition. So I thought, I, you know, now it all makes sense to me after hearing you talk about it. Here's a question from the audience. Any advice or prompts for changing that inner dialogue, cultivating that growth mindset? Uh, yes, but the before I tell you what it is, because that's what the problem is, uh, people do not like to what I call take action. Taking action means you literally have to do what I am going to say, not just think about it or say, oh yeah, I'll remember to uh, do that. It's like when Jane Fonda's workout book uh, workout video came out, a lot of people thought they could just lie in bed and watch it and expect to get it. <laughs> so one of the things that you have to do, and there's many answers to the question asked, uh, but it all focuses on increasing your awareness to how you talk to yourself so you can catch those irrational statements. So one thing I will do, and this is to take action, this is what people do not want to do, is to sit down in a chair and for three minutes a day, for two weeks, just listen to how you talk to yourself. And what many people will find is how they talk to themselves doesn't help. It makes the situation worse. Who has a better day? The financial advisor who wakes up in the morning and the first thing he or she says to themselves is, oh, Mark is going to go down another 500 points today. Uh, inflation, this is terrible. My clients don't want to talk to me. I won't even get out of bed. Or the advisor who wakes up and the first thing he or she says is, I'm going to have a great day today. I don't care what the market does. I'm going to be successful. Even if the results are the same, we know who had the better emotional landscape for the day. So that's the first thing I tell the person to do. The second thing I would tell the person to do is to take a three by five card or five by eight card and write down three statements that if you say these statements, it puts you in a good mood. And Put those statements on your night table. You have to cue yourself. You have to train yourself. Yes, you have to become an athlete so that you are looking at these statements over and over because how you talk to yourself, remember, is habitual. We get what I like to call a hardening of the corollaries. It's, it's like how many times you've been in an argument with a person and the reality is the same argument you had the day before. Even the dialogue is the same. And you get so trapped into it, if the person walks out of the room, you're still talking, acting as though they are listening. So you got to be able to, you can't change your thoughts unless you become aware of your thoughts. Uh, also, another thing for the person to do is let's say you're going into a pressure moment. Standard is giving a presentation. What is one word? I did this with my son. He's a, in, um, a top recruiter. So I said, Danny, when you want to meet with your clients, give me one word that says how you want to come across. And he said, um, professional. Okay. So all you need is one word, and that will cue you in to start acting in a professional manner. When I would give a presentation, my one word would be fun. Because I know if I'm having fun, the audience, my crowd is going to have fun and therefore probably learn more. So those are some strategies to do. And here's the most important one. For this person who asked that question, I want them to use their physiological cues. Like when they get anxious and you, you feel that in a pressure moment, your heart's beating. Use those physical cues as a signal that it's time to talk to yourself differently. 
So every time you feel anxious, that is an indication that how you're talking to yourself is making it worse, not better. So use your what's going on in your, your body as a message that it's time to change how you think. I, I, I was wondering this, Hank, as I'm listening to you. Why did Bill Russell throw up before every single game? Uh, that's what he t- tells people. Um, I really, could, it, maybe it had to do with what he ate before a game. I do not know. I mean, he said he had a lot of nerves. One of my favorite movies is called The Cutting Edge about a uh, hockey player and a nice figure skater and they get together at the Olympics and so on. And he's going out and he says, you know, before the championship game, I filled up my helmet with vomit four times and then he was fine. He settled down. And he saw in the NCAA game, uh, the championship game, a North Carolina guy got down and he started throwing up. So sometimes your nerves do that. It's never happened to me. And sometimes that might be what you eat. Just like I don't want anybody who likes sports when you're watching your team and, and the guy shoots a foul shot at the end of the game, doesn't necessarily mean he's choking. It could mean that he's physically tired and it's his energy. It's not that the pressure is getting to him. There are a lot of studies that show that when you have to do a physical task, if you do another physical task before the main one, you will actually do worse because your body starts to get tired. Um, do people perform better under pressure as they get older, like under, you know, mentally manage things no, better? I, I, no, well, maybe it depends on how you define older. The, well, the I guess, you know, from age 20 to let's say 40, you know, as time goes along, are, are you better, able better to roll with things or uh, I, rationalize I, things in your mind? Yeah, because I think we become more mature, you know, and we learn not to go crazy over the little things that we might have done when we were, you know, 25. How I handle a disappointment now is different than how I have handled it when I was 30. But I will say that there were some tasks like driving that the older you get, the worse driver you become. One of the ways that's measured is in busy traffic with seniors. They look at when they make turns and you know uh, that the older they get and the more crowded it is, the worse the turn comes, they're driving, in another, they're driving in another lane. So that maybe has to do with our psychomotor coordination. Maybe that starts to wane as we get, as we get older. Are some people hardwired for pressure? That's really a good question because I know some people are hardwired for depression. Some people are hardwired for optimism. So I would have to say yes, depending on how we answer that. I would say that people are hardwired with certain dispositions, sentiments that will make them more susceptible to not doing well under pressure. The class example is people with anxiety disorders. Yeah. People are hardwired for some people for anxiety or there is a strong uh, hereditary component of anxiety disorders. So you have to remember that in every pressure moment, there was a sense of uncertainty. Anxiety is uncertainty that you think is coming. It's an uncertain and hostile that the impending doom is coming your way. That, that's what most people forget about about anxiety. You hear them, they say, it's just uncertainty. It's not just uncertainty. It is the impending doom. If I say to you, you're either going to a Ritz Carlton or Four Seasons, you're not getting anxious. You're getting you know, excited because they're both great, they're both great uh, 
choices. If I say to you, well, you're going to go to this hotel, but they might not have a reservation at three o'clock in the morning. That's when you start to feel anxious because you see it, it could be some type of, um, of threat that is coming your, uh, your way. What was the question again, Mark? I said, are some people hardwired? Yeah, so, hard, so I would say that anybody who ha has a anxiety disorder, because there's already uncertainty and anxiety in a pressure moment. Now, if you if you have if you're hardwired with an anxiety disorder, you are bringing more anxiety to the table and making it even harder for you. So people who are already anxious in a pressure moment are behind the eight ball right off the bat. Uh, please talk about your clinical assessment tool called the pressure inventory. I thought it was interesting. The pressure inventory, which is in the book and which people can use uh, in Xerox and give to the people who they work with and so on. Uh, in fact, I want people to do that. Uh, it is an instrument that is designed to help people increase their awareness of how they perform under pressure and what type of pressure situations are difficult. Now, the way we get these situations is through collecting data, you know, walking into a class at Wharton, for example, which I did for years and would say the first thing I'd say is write down the top. 10 situations that you feel pressure in, then I would collect them. And after a while, I stopped doing that because I saw the redundancy. I didn't need any more, I didn't need any more uh, data. So we, we incorporated that into the inventory. It's a developmental tool. It doesn't teach you how to perform under pressure, but it puts you on the track for how to develop your skills for performing under pressure. I wondered this, and I've seen, I've experienced this um, from some leaders. Why do some leaders believe putting people in pressure situations will get more out of them? And that's a good idea for testing people's ability for increasing responsibility. Well, you know, Andy Grove at Intel was like that. And I will tell you, I did a lot of work with Intel and I never saw a person with a smile on their face. Uh, Jack Welsh did that, and that's why he was called Neutron Jack. Nobody really, from what I know, enjoyed working under him. I would say the reason most many managers or CEOs do that is because um, they have misinformation. Pressure does not bring out the best in people. Have I you think ever, it's the worst. Have you ever heard anybody come home and say to their partner, God damn it, I wish I was under more pressure? <laughs> I never heard... I never heard a kid come home from school and say, mom, you've got to talk to the teacher. They're not putting enough pressure uh, on me. Yeah. So the, 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 um, that is just a mistake. That is just bad management philosophy. It's like type A and type B personality. Type A characteristics, 50% of Fortune 500 CEOs in a study were identified as type A's and other were type B's, but there was no difference between how successful uh, they were. It, so the type A of you know always being in a rush and everything is urgent and so on does not um, translate into success, but it does translate into poor mental health. What's the concept of the natural pressure management tools? You're not... Everybody has what I like to call natural tools, meaning you don't have to buy them. Everybody can think. Everybody has physiological arousal in their, in their body. 
everybody has certain behaviors and act. Uh, the idea of natural tools is these are the tools that can help you manage pressure, like your thoughts. Instead of using your thoughts to make pressure more intense, you can use it to reduce pressure. Instead of letting your physiology create the familiar feeling of butterflies in the chest, you can use your physiology, which you are born with, to actually uh, calm. So that, you know, would you rather be in a calm sea or rough, or rough waters? So that's what I mean, that these are things that are, you don't have to go out and buy something to be able to manage pressure. All you have to do is use your thoughts differently, use your behavior differently, use your physiology differently. Think back uh, that two people get in a um, fall in a pit and they can't get out. Now, the person who has the natural tool of a louder voice has an edge over a person who cannot scream as loud, right? That's no different than today. The singer who has the stronger voice has an edge over the singer who has a weaker voice. So these are all tools within us that we have. Nobody has to give them to us. We have them. You know, it seems like different types of leaders, every different styles can still succeed no matter how they act. Because in sports, which we all love because we see it, uh, Joe Torre was an amazing manager for the Yankees, averaging 97 wins in his 14 seasons there. And in his book, he talked about always thinking about how did you reduce the pressure on players to get them to play to their optimum? But it seems like somebody like Bill Belichick or Vince Lombardi did exactly the opposite when they were trying to coach people. How do you account for the differences and these both and both styles succeeded in major ways? Well, that is, again, a very interesting question. I have some thoughts, not necessarily answers, but I do know that I would say to my friends at UCLA that if people don't know, they won 10 championships in a row. And everybody said, what a great coach John Wooden was. And he reduced pressure. And I said, John Wooden came up with the two greatest coaching expressions of all time. One, get the ball to Alcindor. And two, <laughs> pass the ball to Walton. <laughs> Joe Torrey, I'll say, he, as a Yankee fan, he was a good manager. Look at the players he had. Look at the players he had. He had a guy come in in the ninth inning of every game and he could go, he could leave, he could leave early. We so all left the, early when so, he came in. That's right. So one of the questions we must really ask is, what does the coach really do? And do the, the, what does the baseball manager really do? And do they make a difference? I think what Joe Torre was able to do was uh, create good, decent interpersonal relationships between the players so he could make the team more cohesive so that they were pulling for each other. I compare that again as a Yankee fan to the Bronx Zoo during the Reggie years. They were successful, but the place was, if somebody was getting fired, the manager got fired three times in one year and brought back. Yeah. So that was crazy. So I think that's what Tory did. He was the right manager in the right team at the right, at the right time. But Hank, doesn't it also take a certain skill to manage elite people like Phil Jackson strikes me as a, a jerk, but he managed the same personality twice in one 10 championships and Michael Jordan 
and Kobe Bryant. And isn't there a certain skill set to managing uh, elite people? Well, I think that the skills, that's actually a really good question in terms of other different skills for elite athletes. And from my observation and so on, I think one of the most important things you do with an elite athlete is, uh, especially at a professional level, like the NBA, is you let them do as they do. You know, what? are you watching the Laker dynasty on HBO called Winning Time? It's, it's very hard for a coach you know, Phil Jackson was the the meditation, you know, and good karma and laid back. I don't know how much um, instructions and in coaching he really gave his players. And my guess is the more elite the athlete is, the less coaching that they have in the manager's role, the coach's role shifts into building confidence. What I want people to realize is that there are four attributes that when you can instill them in yourself are like an immunization against pressure. And those four attributes are confidence, optimism, tenacity, and enthusiasm. Now, I like to call that the coat of armor and the pressure solution. So when I say that when you're going into give a presentation, do a difficult conversation, you're feeling some pressure, you have to perform. Uh, and one of the strategies is flashback on your successes, just remembering how many times you have done the same thing. Like when I give a presentation, why would I be nervous? I'm, I'm telling myself I've done this a thousand times. Um, that becomes very uh, important to be able to do uh, and to be able to do it in the moment. So flashing back on your successes is a microcosm of the attribute of confidence. Just like telling a joke or using humor, I could make a good case as a microcosm for creating the sense of enthusiasm. See, it's very important to make yourself enthusiastic. You talk about good coaches. Did you ever see the movie Hoosiers with Gene Oh, I love it. Okay, yeah. so do you remember what he would do before the team went out to the court? He measured it. And, and before that though, in the locker room, what do you do? Oh, he boosted their, yeah, boosted their everybody to yeah. clap and then they take the field. Okay. Yeah. When I was giving presentations, I was, I would use that all the time as a example and so on. Now every coach does that. Now, why is that effective? See, see a staff meeting should end with people clapping too, because one of the things about emotions that people need to know is they are like a social virus. They spread from one person to another. Now think of how that impacts pressure. If I am thinking, okay, you know, we're on a team and I'm gonna handle, and I handle pressure pretty well, but my teammates start getting anxious, it's only a matter of time before emotional contagion, I pick up their emotions and I pick up their anxiety. When you yell at somebody, what happens? The person yells back. And then they say, look how you're acting. They've caught your emotion. And the more you catch other people's emotions, the worse you are going to do. One of the ways emotions are communicated is through sound. That's why clapping is a great thing for the coach to do before the players. It arouses them, jazzes them up. A uh, uh, question from the audience. On the personal side, have you ever applied your skills and tools to improve your golf game? That, that saying that if you even play golf, 
especially when you're playing with your friends? Um, I will tell you that in the last uh, three months, I have walked golf courses with pros, giving them pressure, something. Um, I don't play golf. Uh, my friends do. And I will tell you that when I've given presentations, especially to financial groups, I see them, they, you know, it's always finished by 12 o'clock because they need to be on the golf course by one. And people use these strategies. I could give you a lot of strategies, and I'll name two very quickly, that uh, will help you when you're playing golf with your friends. First of all, as soon as, first to think, like if you, Mark, if you're having a, a, a foul shooting contest, you know the answer because you read the book. Uh, with your friend, do you want to go first or second? You want to go second. Uh, you want to go first. Second is the choking strategy. That's why who has honors in golf, if I have honors and I tee off. So if I make a bad drive, you go second, you still have to make a good drive. <laughs> yeah. And if I make a great drive, there's more pressure than you have to make drive. If I miss my first foul shot, it's out of 10, you have to still make yours to go ahead. And if I make mine, the pressure has increased because you have to make yours just to tie. Studies have shown in terms of shootouts in the NHL and in World Cup soccer and penalty kicks, the team that goes first has a huge statistical advantage. Another good thing to say with, to your friend, as soon as they make their first shot, you say to them, hey, what are you doing with your left shoulder? And that will distract them for the rest of the day. They will cut, they, you will increase <laughs> their awareness. I'm serious. serious. To their heads. To their, to, their, uh, to their left shoulder. Also, you can only do this if you are a righty. Before you make an important shot, pick up a golf ball and clench your left fist. Now, the reason that is effective is that clenching your left fist interrupts the ruminating language that is going on in the language part of your brain that is responsible for, quote, choking. You don't want to be thinking, oh, if I miss this pot, my friends are going to laugh at me or I lose $5. Imagine what the pro might be thinking. If I miss this pot, I can kiss my Nike deal uh, goodbye. So when you clench your fist, it only works if you are a righty because of opposite areas of the body control opposite areas of the brain. So you have to do it. You know, it only works if you are righty. Clench that fist before you do something. Also, if you have, if you are, how do I say this? Uh, I was going to say if you have older parents, but I'm thinking is I'm old. I, my parents are dead. Yeah. But one of the things they found that this applies to is when senior people, I'll use that phrase, get up to go to the bathroom at night and they trip. They found like walking down the stairs. I've known two people, friends, whose parents have fallen down the stairs in the last three years. And that's how they died. Is that clenching your left fist again? Because again, that will get those thoughts. You know, it's like when you pull out of the garage, do you actually think, I don't want to hit the side of the, the garage or whatever. You just do it in a fluid movement. But when you start thinking, 
it interrupts the fluidity. This is why an athlete chokes. A baseball player, when they say a baseball player or a tennis player, they're thinking too much. Now I know exactly what that means. They are not trusting their muscle memory. Why would a golfer start thinking about their swing when they've done it 50,000 50, times? That's what causes it. Why would a dancer who knows the routine flawlessly start thinking, am I making the right step? That's when they make a miscue. Question from the audience. I have seen people starting to self-talk under pressure. Any suggestions on how they should handle this? Well, the self-talk can either sabotage them or the self-talk can help them. And rather than have so much self-talk going in, I want to go back to that strategy that I mentioned earlier. It's called using a holistic word cue. It's just come up with one word. See, the problem is you're talk- the person's talking too much, too much. And if you're talking, you can't be focusing and concentrating on your task. People do poorly in a pressure moment, i.e. choke, for only one reason. They become distracted. That's it. So the idea of pressure management is to prevent yourself from being distracted by these anxiety arousing thoughts, like what happens if I don't make this pot or what happens if I don't give a good presentation? What will my boss say? And you start thinking about that. And the next thing you know is you forget the words that are coming out of your mouth. So instead of having a whole bunch of self-statements to yourself, simply just have one word that you are repeating. The Frisbee team at the University of Iowa, it might have been Iowa State, was choking. Uh, they were doing great in practice, and then when the game came, they would do poorly. So the Iowa State Psychology Department came up with a great pressure solution. Listen to music. Why do you think you see so many athletes during practice wearing headphones? If it, because it, everything's tuned out. They're just getting into their flow. I would tell my kids every time they had an interview, right up until the first question, I want you to be humming a song. Because if you're humming a song, you can't be thinking, what are they thinking about me? And so on. Uh, Also, they found that if you sing the lyrics rather than hum, you actually do better. And if they are happy lyrics, you do the best. So, you know, uh, don't worry, be happy might be the antidote that many people are looking for. Hank, if I start singing, and other people feel stressed out uh, just listening to my voice and all the flat notes I throw out there. Are, are, you're, here's one of the things, and we have a lot of entrepreneurs who are listening to this. You're ready to make the most important presentation of your life to a group of investors. What are a couple of the strategies to reduce the pressure and be at your best? Okay. Well, the first, as I mentioned earlier, I said is to befriend the opportunity. So if th- that would be... Okay, so I'm not talking to business people, entrepreneurs. So for me, I'm talking to 10 editors about a new book proposal. And it's the most important presentation ever. And all I'm thinking of, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to get them into a bidding war. I'm going to have fun doing this. Or this is a challenge to convince them. Those three things. That's the first thing. The second I want to say is, no matter how many wealthy people are here, Next week, I'll be talking to another. There is always another opportunity. There is always another train that is coming. I used to laugh when I'd see people go nuts because they missed a flight and whatever. 
uh, okay, so you got there's another one an hour later. It is not a um, disaster. So knowing that there's going to be multiple opportunities, befriending the opportunity, telling yourself that you've done this many times before would be another thing that you can um, do. You can prepare for that presentation. The mistake that people make when they prepare for their presentation, they do it exactly as they want it to come out. In other words, orderly. So let's say that you had a presentation and it was going to be 15 minutes. I would tell the person to, when they practice, practice the last three minutes first. In other words, do it out of order. Randomize, randomize it. Practice it in situations that make it more difficult. One time my son said, okay, I'm having an interview and they want me to give a sales pitch You know that they give you. They, they want me to do it with enthusiasm and so on. I said, all right, go ahead. I'm listening. Do it. He says, well, turn off the TV. I said, Danny, would you tell your boss to turn off the TV uh, if he had it? I said, if the TV is distracting you, that's your problem. It's not my problem. So you want to practice in difficult situations. If you only have 10 minutes to give a presentation when you practice, do it in five minutes. Because 10 minutes then will seem like all the time in the, in the, uh, in the world. That is a strategy that a lot of basketball coaches do, is that they make practice more difficult than the, than the game. So those are some strategies that you can um, that you can do. Um, question from the audience, and this doesn't deal with business, but it's relatable. What advice do you have for parents that are guiding college age kids that are experiencing decision fatigue in this age of information overload? That's a great question, and that really ties into the last book I wrote, which is called uh, "The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure." I would say the most important thing for a parent to do, because the person who asked that question, what I want them to realize, even though they might deny it, they're part of the problem. They're part of the ones creating the pressure and, and, and so on. First of all, parents should all, too many parents are concerned with getting their kid into the best school, wrong. They should be concerned about getting them into what is the right school. The right school, the right college might not be the best college that they can get into. I had a friend whose his son went to Amherst, which is one of the best schools in the country, and it was the wrong match. The kid was miserable. He should have been at the right school, which would have been a school like the University of Michigan, where he could have had a, uh, you know, a great time. So that is, um, that is important. I, I think it's important for the parent to focus on the kid's interest and say, you know, Follow your interest is the key. Ask the kid, what, visualize. Do you like to be in a big school, small school, campus school, city school? And most importantly, the parent needs to let the kid know that while this is one of the most important decisions, there's going to be many more decisions that they have to make. And if they don't like, if they make the wrong decision, then they can transfer. That's that's the thing. the The other thing is to have a real heart to heart talk with the kid, with the kid, and really talk about what's going. How are you feeling? Very few parents ask their kids how are they feeling. They they're, because they're more concerned with what they do. Uh, my friend's son just got uh, into Harvard, but the son was he, he had many great choices to go to, and that's how the parents should I would approach it is because many kids, their entire self-esteem is wrapped up into the school that they 
go to. And parents do that too. When a parent says to me, oh, my kid got into Harvard, I don't congratulate the parent. I say, oh, so my congratulations to your kid. The parent's not going. Yeah. And there are many parents who are like that. Any kid who is experiencing pressure and stress about college and whatever, some of that is from their peers, some of that is from themselves, but a major part of it is from their parents. And that's the truth. And that's why parental pressure is a global pandemic. I, I was cu curious about this. Do men, uh, do women and men, people at different ages, and for that matter, of different cultures, handle pressure and stress differently? Uh, I'm sure they do. I do not have a great expertise uh, to really be highly specific, but there are always sex differences. I will tell you that women choke less in tennis than men. Now, one of the reasons for that is because women in pressure moments play more defensively. So that extends the round. They're waiting for the other person to make a mistake. Whereas men tend to tennis players play more aggressively, which then will force them, they'll take more chances. So they'll have more out of bound shots. But hey, here's, there are probably sex differences. I, I thought this was interesting in your book. Uh, I thought it was interesting that teams of people worry more about failure than coming up with an original solution. Why is that? And how do you break the team of that habit? Wait, say that again. So I, I, I thought it was interesting. This was in your book. that teams of people worry more about failure than coming up with an original solution. Why is that? And how do you break a team of that habit? It's almost like they're afraid of taking risk. Well, that's it. But it, taking risks because, see, the, 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 the sentence after because is really important. They think something negative will happen. You see this in the publishing industry, that you get, re, that it's easier, to, it's safer to reject a book rather than to publish it. Because if, every, if all the editors reject it and, and somebody else publishes it, says, well, we were all wrong. Versus one person saying, no, I want to publish this book and, and so on. So I think that people really fear failure and that is that primal pressure because the real root thing is that the impending doom of failure, I will be lose my job if I fail. And if I lose my job, I will lose my family and I won't be able to support them and I will cease to exist. You know, when a parent, son or daughter comes home from school, the parent says, well, how was school today? Oh, terrible. My life is over. I didn't get invited to the party and whatever. The first thing the parent will say, you should hear yourself. You sound ridiculous. It's a little thing. Get over it. And yet, if that parent gives a bad presentation at work, they're coming home and they're doing the same thing. My life is over. I'm going to get a bad performance appraisal. I won't get my raise and so on. Uh, Hank, maybe you'll send this to me and I can get this out. One of the people asked, can you reshare the link for the assessment. And so maybe you could send it to me because I'll get this out to everybody. And another uh, question is, could Hank repeat what stands for an E in Cody, C-O-T-E? Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, Which is important, whether it's in the boardroom, the locker room, the bedroom. You know, I have an online class on performing under pressure, which is so cheap, it is embarrassing. Uh, and people might find it useful. The other thing, Mark, that I want to do, but not today, but I will do it in the next two or three days, is I will send you a PowerPoint 
presentation on pressure. Uh, and then the folks, you can send it to everybody and they can use it sort of like as a reference guide. Uh, because it also has things, you know, there's two types of pressure. One is in the moment. None of my friends, as I mentioned, my friends, lawyers, doctors, and so on, and they're my age. None of them feel pressure when they are performing at work. I have a friend, he's a very famous criminal attorney. When he goes in, there is zero pressure that he feels. His pressure and my friend's pressure is, how much longer do I have to pay for my daughter's apartment? How much longer do I? That's the type of pressure they are facing. And that is a different type of pressure. It's more of that daily burden that you feel like you are carrying. And there are strategies that are in the handout, uh, but maybe very quickly just to explain them. One of them is to focus on personal excellence rather than being the best. I want everybody listening that no matter what you do, you're never going to be the best. There's always somebody smarter. Always somebody Maximize smarter, your potential. Always somebody richer and whatever. So what I'm saying is just focus on yourself, on a, create a mindset of excellence rather than a ranking mindset where you're always comparing yourself to other people. When I moved out of LA to Connecticut, that really helped me because I was the type of person I was always comparing myself to, to other, other people. I was comparing my books to other people. One of my friends said, Hank, somebody else's book, it's more successful than yours, doesn't take away from you. <laughs> and that was a very important message because I was very competitive. Com competition brings out the worst in people, not the best in people. That's what we, we mistakenly tell people competition brings out the best, brings out the worst. Competition is what causes people to cheat and lie. Uh, also, people should express gratitude. I know that I used to think that sounds hokey, but I have found that when I am feeling down or I want to reduce pressure, I will sit on my couch, which is right in back of me, and I will start to think, you know, I have two great kids. Um, I have a, a new book. I have another one in the plans. I don't have any financial issues. I can go out with any woman over 66 years old. Uh, my life is really good. And I do that five minutes, and all of a sudden, I really feel good. So five minutes of gratitude. Uh, I, I used to think that's I, it's hokey, but it is very, very uh, effective. And doing those two things, moving to a mindset of just worrying about yourself. My father always used to tell me, don't worry about the other person. You can't control them. Just focus on yourself. Uh, and also, don't live up to other people's expectations. Operate by your own values. Because the truth is, I used to see this in marriage counseling, where the wife or the husband will say, I did everything they wanted, and they still left me. So the other person's behavior is out of your control. And if you live by somebody else's expectations, you're always going to feel pressure. Because you're always going to, and you'll never come up to them. Because the person will say, ah, it could always have been better. So live by, let your own values navigate your life. Express gratitude. Focus on just becoming your best, not the best and you will have a happier life. And if that is gonna be my closing statement, I want everybody to apply what I am saying because that is a guaranteed way that I can say, let the force of pressure be with you. Hank, thanks so much for spending the time with us. And I kind of think you should have a show like Dr. Frazier did, and uh, that would be awesome. Uh, but and I do I wanna come back and talk about the power of positive criticism. And we will have you come back again. Thank right. you so much. And thanks, everybody, for coming today. And we'll look forward to seeing you all next week. 
Have a great weekend, everybody. Have a great Pesach and Easter if you celebrate it. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.